33. Psalm 33. Very interesting psalm. And the first thing you'll notice is that there's no author listed. We don't know who wrote this psalm. Could have been David, may not be David. But what we do know is the theme of the psalm, and it's listed right there in the verse, uh, first verse, which says, Rejoice in the Lord. So this is a, a psalm of praise. It's a hymn of praise uh, to God as creator, and you'll see that in the psalm. And the God who's the Lord of history. You'll see that in the psalm as well. And we're going to divide the psalm into five parts. And so for those of you who take notes, I'll give you the little outline. In verses 1 through 3, you're going to see there's a call to praise. The writer calls his people to praise the Lord. That's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 9, the reason for praise. Why we should praise the Lord. Verses 10 through 12, section on God and the nations, those nations that don't praise God, God and the nations, and then verses 13 through 19, God and his people, verses 13 through 19, God and his people, so you'll go from the nations who don't believe in God to his people who do, and then finally verses 20 through 22, you're going to see that the nation of Israel responds to the request to praise God, so you're going to see a response there. Now, also in this passage, you will notice two well-known verses that you've probably heard somewhere before. Verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Sort of a famous verse. And also, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Another very famous verse. But in order to know what they really mean, you need to interpret these verses in their context, where they are in the passage. So a lot of times we say, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and we say, That's America. But it's not talking about other nations. You're going to see that basically it's talking about the nation of Israel. Uh, they're the ones that God has called uh, to himself. And so we'll see how all that fits out. So anyway, let's look at uh, the call to praise in verse 1. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. So he starts off with rejoicing in this psalm. And what we discover is that this verse 1 picks up right where... Uh, Psalm 32 left off. In Psalm 32, he says in verse 11, right at the end, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Now look at verse 1 of Psalm 31. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. So this is what we are to do. We are to rejoice. The call to rejoice. Notice how it's written. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command to rejoice. Uh... The fact that he commands his people to rejoice says something. It says that they weren't rejoicing. <laughs> or you wouldn't have to command somebody to rejoice. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. And the Lord is not only the focus of the rejoicing, the object of our praise, he's what we call the locus of our rejoicing, we not only praise Him, but we praise uh, in Him. We find our joy in Him. Uh, we express our joy to Him, our praise to Him, but we find our joy in Him. And many people in very affluent countries find their joy in their, uh, their wealth or their vacation homes or 
many other things, their education. But uh, what would you do if you lived in some of these countries that Susie was talking about? You don't have any joy in those countries. Where are you going to find your joy? Not in circumstances, not in what you have. Your joy is found in the Lord. And that's what this call is. Now, notice who is called to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. That's God's people. Okay? Uh, so he calls us righteous. Now, we're not righteous in and of ourselves, but we are the ones that are called to live in a right relationship with God and to uh, have a right standing with God. Now, the fact that he calls them to rejoice means that probably they weren't rejoicing correctly, and so he does this. And he tells us why we're to rejoice. Look what he says in verse 1. Rejoice, or praise the Lord, for praise from the upright. Notice that. God's people, not the heathen, which we're going to meet in this passage. Praise from the upright is beautiful. The old King James says, is comely. Say, what in the world does that mean? Becoming. To praise God is becoming. And you know what that means when you go out and you buy a dress and your husband says, now that dress becomes you. It's becoming of you. That means it, it fits your personality. It's just right for you. Okay? So when we praise the Lord... Uh, that's becoming to us. It fits us as Christians. When you don't praise God as a Christian, and many don't, take a look around at the faces. Then it's like wearing the wrong kind of clothes. It's not becoming. That doesn't become you. You're a Christian. You should be praising the Lord. So this is why we're to praise. And then he tells us how to praise. Look at verse 2. Praise the Lord with the heart. And then he says, make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Now, this is a Hebrew parallel, parallelism, which means line one means the same thing as line two. So here's what he said. Praise the Lord with the harp, that's line one, and then he comes right back and he just says it another way. But it means the same thing. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. So he's telling us how to praise. How do we praise? With accompaniment. With instruments. Notice he puts in ten strings. Must mean he wants us to use them all. He doesn't want you to play one note of praise. He wants it to have variety. He wants it to have fullness. And by the way, this is the first time a musical instrument is mentioned in the Psalms. No musical instrument is mentioned in the Psalms up to Psalm 33. So he tells us how to praise. In verse 3, he continues on with how to praise. Sing to him... A new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now notice that our praise involves three things here. Notice that. First of all, it should be fresh. Do you see that? Sing to him a new song. Accompanied by the instruments. Make it fresh. Not stale. Not rote. Not routine. When you go to church and you praise the Lord, is it the same old thing? You really, you're not engaged? Make it fresh. A new song. Why a new song? Because God's doing something new every day, isn't it? You're not living on your past testimony when you got saved at 16 and still praising Him for that. You are, but guess what? You should be praising Him for what He did yesterday. Not what He did in yesteryear. You know? You should praise Him for yesteryear, but not only for yesteryear. So it should be fresh 
worship. And then notice also in verse 3, it should be on key. Did you notice that? Yeah, on key. Play skillfully. It should have a little bit of artistic uh, quality to it. <laughs> Masterful. That's why you need the instrument. That's why you need the other people, because if you're like me, you can't sing on key. And then notice also in verse 3, it should be with fervor. It should be enthusiastically uh, presented to the Lord. Pray skillfully with a shout of joy. It should be wholehearted. So it should be fresh. It should be masterful, artistic. It should have artistic flair. And it should be enthusiastic. So that's how you to praise the Lord. Now, notice the reason for praising the Lord. Look at verse 4. Here it is. For the word of the Lord, because... Here's why you're to praise Him. Because the word of the Lord is right. And all of His work is done in truth. Now, notice that you can't separate the word of God from the work of God. Do you see that? It says... There's that perfect sound. For those of you who still have hearing. Uh, uh, <laughs> mine's going down very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I've gone to meddling, haven't I? Uh, look at verse 4. The word of the Lord is right. Some translations say it's faithful. If God says He's going to do something, guess what? He's going to do it. That's why the next part of the line 2 says, the work of the Lord is done in truth. He's, uh, his work and His word match. If He says He's going to do something, He does it. His words are not empty. They're always accompanied by actions that produce the end result that He wants. And because God keeps His word and His word is effectual, He's faithful, we should praise Him. And so he carries out his plans. Now look at verse 5. Here's why his word and his plans are faithful. Because he loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. This explains why his words are faithful. Why he is, he's faithful to keep his word. Because, guess what? He doesn't just create the world and then step back and let everything just run the way it wants. He's concerned with righteousness, and he is concerned with justice. Now notice in verse 5, it says he loves that. You see that? He doesn't only approve of righteousness and justice. This is his passion. He's consumed with righteousness and justice. That's what we should be consumed with. And so this is the Lord's passion. And because he is so passionate about justice being done, that righteousness be carried out on the face of the earth, he does something about it. He makes promises and he steps in and he carries it out. Now look what else it says in verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. All you have to do is look around and you see God's goodness everywhere. Some people don't see it. But it's there. The rain falls on them. Yeah, the good and the bad, just and the unjust, you see. And uh, the scripture says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance in Romans. And so God's goodness is found everywhere. 
And if you look over at verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, now he's going to show you how his goodness is seen in this world. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's line number one. Look at line number two. And all the host of them by the breath, breath of his mouth. So when he talks about the word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth, that means basically the same thing. You can't speak without breathing. And so God speaks things into existence. Now what does God give us here in verse 6? The heavens were made. You see that? And the host of them. The sun. Do we need the sun to live? Yes. Look, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens. All that was made by God and it was made for us. All that was created for our benefit. So that's God's goodness toward us. Look at verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. Line number one. Same thing. Said another way. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. So, verse 6, guess what he creates? The heavens. Verse 7, what does he create? The ocean. You see that? The sky and the sea. In the sea, guess what? We have food. Jim Ray and Paula were Florida this past week. They ate seafood every night. Came right out of the sea. She said, except for the last night, she said, if I eat another shrimp, it's going to drive me crazy. She said, I want Mexican food. So she got a hankering there, a little craving. She got her Mexican food. So what we see is that God creates the heavens, and he creates the seas. He creates the heights. He creates the depths. And what it says in verse 7, he gathered the waters together. This is what it says in Genesis 1.10, by the way. It says that God gathered the waters together in one place. He set shorelines. They wouldn't go over the shoreline. He set shorelines. So you have your oceans basically set and your seas basically set. And uh, after he did that, Genesis 1.10 says, after he did that, the very next statement, he said, and it is good. See, that's why that previous verse that we read says, in, in the verse 5, it says, the goodness, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now, in light of that, look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now, the fact that He is that powerful, where He can speak something and it happens, guess what you should do? You should fear the Lord. You should be in all of the Lord. But verse 18 doesn't say just the Jews. Remember, he's writing to Jewish, a group of Jewish people. But look what it says. Let all the earth, that includes Gentiles, even the heathen nations, when they take a look around and they see creation and God's great power, that should cause the nations to stand in all of the Lord and say, man, we better not go against his people or he might speak a word against us, and then we're really in trouble. So the creation should cause even the lost people to fear the Lord. And by implication, just think about this, by implication, it means that the lost people, the heathen nations, are to fear the Lord, and by implication, they are to submit to his earthly representative, which is the king of Israel. See, now that's what you need to understand when you're reading this passage. This passage is about different nations. 
a nation filled with God's people, Israel, who are called to worship Him. And the other nations who are against God and by implication against His people, and this psalmist is saying, you better take a look around at how powerful God is because if you did, guess what you would do? You would shake in your boots. And you better not come against His people because He'll come right against you. All you have to do is speak and you're out of existence. What you need to do is you need to submit to God's representative on earth, uh, which would be the king of Israel, and you need to forsake your idols. See, because all the nations of the world, what were they doing? Who were they giving credit to for everything that happened? God? The God of, no, they were giving credit to all their different little gods. They built idols. Represented their gods, and so this is really a call to for the nations to forsake their idols and bow the knee to God and submit to Israel, God's kingdom. Now look at verse nine. He spoke. This is why you should fear God. He spoke, and it was done. That's line one. He commanded, and it stood fast. In the Latin, it's dictum factum. Dictum, factum. Said, done. Nothing in between. That's how fast it happened. God said it, it happened just like that. Without delay. And let me tell you, this should cause you to fall on your knees and praise the Lord. So, that's what he's doing. So he's explaining uh, God's power here. Now he speaks of God's power over the nations. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to what? To nothing, to naught. That's line one. Same thing said another way. He brings the plans of the peoples, that's the peoples of the nation, to no effect. So, when the nations have plans and they say, we're going to attack Israel, we're going to overthrow God's kingdom, guess what? God brings that counsel to naught, and he makes their plans of no effect. So, God stands for his people, and his plans are not uh, the Lord's plans are not based on the contrivances of the nations. The Lord does what he wants to do. The nations try to do what they want to do, but God thwarts their plans. So, you need to understand that. Now look at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Now look back at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to what? Nothing. Now look at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord, however, what? You see, there's two different councils there. Councils of the nations, God's council. One comes to naught, the other stands forever. Look at the end of verse 11. The plans of his heart to all generations. Look back at verse 10. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. You see the two plans? God's plans go on forever. The others have no effect whatsoever. So here's God in the nations, and God knows the plans of the people are plotting. He knows how they over, want to overthrow his people. And God thwarts those plans. And God has a plan that stands fast and forever. You know, God never has to change his plan. He never has a plan B. He's, oh, that one didn't work. Let me go to plan B. It's not like the nations catch God off guard. And he's, oh, I wasn't anticipating that one. Plan C, you know. No, look, the counsel of the Lord stands 
forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. God has one plan, a plan A, and that plan is the kingdom of God. And that's always been his plan. He set up his rule on earth through Israel, and he will eventually set up his rule over the whole earth through his Messiah. And God has a plan, and that plan is called the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, little flock, he said, I give you the kingdom that has been prepared for you since the beginning of creation. That was God's plan. Kingdom of God, which has been created since the beginning of time. So God and the nations, they have a plan. It's not going to work. God has a plan that will work. Okay. Now, look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Which nation is that? Israel. The people, that's line one, line two. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So, God elects Israel through whom he's going to bring salvation to the world. He doesn't choose Israel because they deserve to be chosen. In fact, he may have chosen Israel because they were the least worthy of being chosen. So that you see it's all of God, not of human genius. And so blessed is the nation, that's Israel, whose God is the Lord, and he continues to pour out his blessings upon the nation of Israel, especially in this day. And it was based on his election that they are his nation. Now he's going to talk about the psalmist is going to talk about God and the nations. And look what he says in verse 13. God and his people. Rather, God and his people. Verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven, and guess what? He sees all the sons of men. All people. From the place of his dwelling, he looks. And he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. God sees what every single person does. Doesn't matter who they are. He sees it. And the psalmist says he sees it from heaven, which means he's above time. He's, a, he's above all of creation. He can look down and he can see everything. He sees everything that everyone does, everyone thinks. In other words, his eye is on you. Okay? Now look at verse 15. He fashions their hearts individually and he considers their works. That means nothing escapes his attention. Nothing escapes his attention. Uh, he knows everything that a person does. He knows everything that's in their heart. He created the heart. He knows everything that's in their heart. Even among the heathen nations. He knows the plans that the heathen nations have against Israel. He knows that. He knows plots and plans that your enemies have against you. That's not escaped his sight. He knows that. Say. Now, that means if he knows everything, we call that omniscience. If he's created everything, we call that omnipotence. Would you agree with that? There's a theological term. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. Okay. Now watch verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of of an army, line number one, line number two, 
A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Now, God is all-powerful. He says a king is not saved by his army, by his might. Now, he might think he's saved by his might and his army. He might count all these troops. Well, we have 600,000 troops on the ground. We're okay. Well, no, you're not okay. No man is saved by his strength. Little David with a slingshot. Big, giant Goliath. Who do you think I am, a worm? <laughs> I could just wipe you out. And David picks up a stone and goes, there you go. No man saved by his strength. David's strength came from the Lord. Remember what did David say about Goliath? You come in your own strength, I come in the name of the Lord. So this is what we're what he's saying. So you have kings and armies, whether it's Israel. When Israel starts depending on its own strength, takes surveys to determine how many troops it has, whether it should go into a war or not, it's in trouble. When the Soviet Union comes against Afghanistan with all of its troops, and the mighty power of the Soviet Union can't beat Afghanistan, can't beat guerrilla rebels. Afghanistan holds them at bay for 10 straight years. The United States comes with tonnages of bombs, bombs from Vietnam, and we would. See, nations trust the arm of the flesh and trust weapons. And he is saying, hey, if you think that that's going to save you, you are really mistaken. So look what he says in verse 17. Hey, a horse is a vain hope for safety. Now today we put it this way. A tank is a vain hope for safety. You know, uh, an interballistic missile is a, is a vain hope. What kind of hope? Vain hope. Now, just mark that word hope there. If you're hoping in that, it's an empty hope. It's not going to resonate anything. That's line one. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. So, those who trust in weapons have misplaced their faith. Now look at verse 18. Behold! Behold! The eye of the Lord is on them who fear Him. He knows what's going on. Look at this. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His Mercy. Now notice, verse 18, you hope in God's loving compassion, His mercy. Lord, we need you to help us. But in verse 17, there are people who are hoping in horses and strength. Two different objects of hope, isn't it? The Lord will watch out for those who are hoping in Him. That's what He's saying. Look at verse 19. For what purpose is the eye of the Lord on those? To deliver their soul from death. That means so they won't die in the battle, for example. Or to keep them alive in famine. So, notice, the Lord's eye is on them, and His hand is ready to deliver them from death. His eye is on them, and His hand is ready to deliver them from death. God has great eye-hand coordination. He really does. See something, it's like that he can deliver. Right in the nick of time. So this is what 
he is saying. Now look at this last section here. Look at verse 20. This is the conclusion in light of all this. In light of verses 1 through 19. Look at this. In light of verses 1 through 19. Look at verse 20. Our soul, in other words, we, the psalmist says, the nation of Israel, waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So, guess what you're to do? When nations have their plots and their plans and they come against you, God says to Israel and through this writer, all you need to do, not say, let's amass our army, all you need to do is amass your faith. Just wait on the Lord. Say, Lord, I know... I don't even know where they are. Are they hidden behind those hills way over there? Are they coming around there? Are they splitting the troops around? Are they going to hit us from the back? Lord, we don't even know where we are. They don't, Lord, Israel didn't have satellite surveillance up there, did they? They didn't know where the troops were. They had somebody up there who was looking down. He had satellite surveillance. It was God. He knew where all the enemy troops were. Israel didn't. So guess what they say? Well, Lord, we'll wait on you since you see it all. You know, every, you know every plot? Hey, you know what they're counseling against us? Ah, you can make it to no effect. You can make it all not. Lord, we'll just wait on you. Now, why is the word wait in there? We'll wait on you. Because if God sees the plans and the troop movements and everything that's going on, He knows the right time to move in and solve the problem. He never moves too soon. Our problem is we don't wait long enough. So we see a situation. Oh, 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 I thought this thing would be solved. And it's not. And guess what you finally end up doing? I need to take the bull by the horn. Trust in the arm of the flesh. Trust in your own wisdom. Trust in your own counsel. But the psalmist here says, look, if God... look." If God sees everything, even the things of the end, He's omniscient. And God is omnipotent, He's all-powerful. All we have to do is wait. Pretty smart, isn't it? Good lesson for us. We will wait. He is our help. He's our advocate. He's our offense. He's our shield. He's our defense. Good verse 21. For our hearts, now watch this, we know that he's that because our hearts shall what? Rejoice in him. See, that takes you back to verse 1. The nation was called to rejoice, and at the end, guess what they said? We're going to rejoice. And he'll take care of us because our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. We know God's character. We know that he's compassionate. He loves us. Blessed is a nation. His God is the Lord. We'll just trust in the name of the Lord. That's a, a statement of confidence right there. A statement of reliance. We're going to rely on the Lord, not human strength. And then look at verse 22. This is a call out to God. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, watch this, just as we Hope in you. Let your loving compassion 
Your compassion on our behalf, Lord, be on us. But this is a scary statement right here. Just as we hope in you. In accordance. Deliver us, Lord. May your mercy be upon us in accordance with our hope in you. Or just as we hope in you. Or to the same degree that we hope in you. Now that is a very dangerous prayer right there. Look at it. Lord, have mercy on us to the same degree that we have hope in you. Is that what you want to pray? Lord, I want you to intercede and act on my behalf to the same degree that I have hope in you. No, we don't want that, do we? Because we really don't uh, want God to act on our behalf to the same proportion that we rely on Him. But that's what he says. He's learned his lesson. He calls the nation to pray to the Lord. And he says, Lord, we have learned to hope in you, not hope in weapons, hope in you, and now have mercy upon us. So, here's our assignment this week. Okay? Number one, each one of us needs to learn to wait. And we need to learn to wait longer and longer. Not... Jump in too quickly, saying nothing's happening. How long is this? We're going to have to wait for this. Uh, don't take matters into our own hands. When answers aren't coming and it looks like the dilemma isn't going to be solved, don't panic. He sees everything that's going on and he can stop it with one word. Don't panic. Just trusting. So our assignment this week is just learn to wait longer than you usually do and then when you start getting panicky just say Lord I believe help my unbelief and when we do that guess what that is the ultimate act of faith and we too will be like the people in this psalm so we'll stop there and we'll pick up with Psalm 34 next week Lord I thank you for our Sunday school class the open Bibles a desire to be people of faith to rely more and more on you each day we know that uh we are on a journey. None of us have reached the goal. Uh, we stumble. We fail. But each week we get an insight into your mind and your actions, your love for us. You are showing yourself to be trustworthy. You're calling us to trust you even more, be patient, and wait for you to work in our behalf. Oh, Lord, help us to take these lessons to heart, put them into practice. In Christ's name, amen.